sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin of Chase Law School. And welcome to the midweek show, Ken. Thanks. It's great to be back. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. And uh, I know we were kind of teasing it about it after the show, the, uh, the, the Saturday show. You know, I think we had one of our strongest disagreements of all time. So if you haven't gone and listened to that show, if you really want to hear Ken and I, you know, yeah. disagree about something deeply, you need to head back and start with that one first, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you can pick up here with our uh, with our Wednesday show. But what we're going to do uh, this week, listeners, is you have been asking us a lot of really good and really interesting questions. So many so that we, we, we keep tally of all of these and we want to have an episode where we're just going to basically be dedicating that to your in question. So this is basically the ask Trey and Ken episode. <laughs> uh, and so if we don't quite answer your question, right, you know, feel free to let us know that you've got more that you want to know, right? So you can always uh, talk back to us. Uh, but, in no particular order, we've got some questions, Ken, and we're going to start actually with Matt from Facebook. And here's his question. He says, quote, how can we avert a civil war when we're trapped in between people who still think Trump had the largest inauguration crowd in history and still think Obama was born in Kenya on one side? and people who are enraged to the point of calling for violence against somebody because he smiled the wrong way. End quote. So, Ken, I'll let you start this off. Uh, are, are we on the verge of a civil war? Do I need to load up on ammo? <laughs> I think we'll probably be okay. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the run-up to the actual civil war, um, you know, the members of Congress were beating each other nearly to death with canes during their uh, congressional <laughs> debates. And uh, um, you know. it was it, it was more exciting. I mean, imagine the C-SPAN viewership if. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, would they let them move the camera? You know, <laughs> I know there's congressional rules. You can't move. But we want a better angle of the cane beating. I don't know. Uh, that's a yeah. little bit of a teasing. I'm sorry, Matt. But no, in all honesty. Uh, but I, I think maybe he's he's dramatizing it a little bit here by saying a yeah. civil war. But I do think there are probably listeners out there who might might actually be a little worried that if not a civil war, per se, that we're entering an era where politics may not be possible right maybe in a in a harder bad way but maybe not exactly shooting at one another yeah well i think the most the the the, the if there was going to be a 21st century version of a, a civil war which i th i would just posit would probably be nonviolent you know we'd be talking about a secession movement and something like brexit right and and i don't yeah. i don't even think that's really on the table i i don't think um you know as much as um there is, you know, some of the partisan divide in the country is somewhat geographic, but even with that, I, I, I don't think anyone would be serious about um, having a political movement to break up the United States. And uh, and if the, if anyone did that, I, I just it doesn't seem realistic to me at all to think that it could even get as far as Brexit or Quebec secession from Canada, which didn't end up happening, but there was a real movement for it. Or it or came close. Some, in yeah, a, in it a, came close. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I don't think we're I don't think we're that I don't think we're that divided. I don't yeah. think it would come that close. Well, and I think one of the things, uh, Ken, to kind of add there to to answer you, Matt, is that it is very easy 
to assume that the rhetoric and the beliefs of people in in your whatever your era is is worse because it's more immediate to you uh, than were in previous uh, eras. And I think if you kind of go back, take a look, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, and again, this is just one of my, my areas, so I'm going to point to it. But if you take a look at some of the rhetoric surrounding, say, Thomas Jefferson, for example, right? Uh, he's going to be an atheist who's going to burn your Bibles, you know? Yeah. Uh, or you, you take a look at some of the, uh, of the rhetoric as we move forward, where we t- we're talking about uh, presidents' uh, sexual predilections and some pretty um, graphic terminologies. Again, I'm not saying that it doesn't mean that, that, that there aren't people who get sequestered, but you should always temper that, I think, a bit with that kind of historic perspective and say, well, we've had those kinds of situations before. And in general, they have not led to widespread differences. And as a matter of fact, you know, the Civil War is the result of a lot of cleavages that happen to overlap at the same time. The biggest, which of course is the difference uh, in the, in, in the supposed ownership of, of human property. Yeah. And also I think the civil war took place at a time uh, early enough in our history when the, the national ties to begin with weren't as strong as they are now. So um, not only was there a lot more at the time driving the country apart, but there was a lot less uh, holding it together than than we have now. I, I would think of the 1960s or maybe even the 70s as um, closer analogs. I think in the late 60s in the Vietnam era, civil rights era, a lot of assassinations, you know, the country could have felt like um, it was really falling apart. But, um, you know, it really just kept plugging right along. Right. And I think as long as those kinds of things tie us together and the big one here, economics, <laughs> you know, yeah. another difference between the Civil War era is, is you have relatively uh, autonomous economic conditions between the divide in a way that, I mean, I understand that there are differences, obviously, between urban and rural areas, but their economic ties are very deep in a way that was simply not the case during the Civil War. I, I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Ken, yeah, absolutely. But... Yeah, that was one of the ties I was thinking of when I was saying the whole country is now bound together in much tighter ways than it was back then. That certainly, the, the I was thinking nationalistic, economy. but you're right. That could yeah, have also yeah. been economic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In, in all kinds of ways. Um, the, the, the country's so completely integrated now. I mean, if, if you buy, you know, a pencil, you know, like the, the, the different parts of that are made, you know, all over the world and all over the country now. And, and it's, uh, you know, I just think, yeah, it was just the pro- the pro- project of unraveling the United States would be um, impossibly formidable, I think. I agree. And and on your note of the pencil, uh, being the good conservative libertarian that I am, I can't help but yeah. point out I pencil. Uh, so if you want to read an interesting little autobiography of the pencil, you should hit that up because uh, that's all I could think of when you were talking about that. Uh, so, Scott, I hope that helps answer your question. We're going to turn to Anna next from Facebook as well. And she says this, quote, My question is, what can we do as a society to make up our own mind and reach our own conclusions? And she specifically goes on to say, how can we embrace critical thinking? Uh, And I know as educators, Ken, that we probably have a lot to say about that. So (laughs) (laughs) what do you think about this issue? Is, Is there a way to increase critical thinking or are we all doomed to freshman analysis for the rest of time or L1 in your case? So is the question, uh, uh, how can people do that for themselves or how can people encourage others to do that? Or uh, I wasn't I, sure. I... It seems to me that she is kind of hinting at both, right? So what might I do for myself? And then is there anything we can do maybe 
to help embrace that collectively as well. I, I, and I, I, that's how I'm reading your question, at least. So if I'm wrong, let me know. But that, I think it's a little bit of both. It's, it's, a, it's a constant. Um, I feel like it takes constant effort to really think about developing good habits of mind for oneself and uh, not jumping to conclusions, thinking clearly based on logic and evidence. Um, you know, I'm not sure human brains are hardwired to work that way. So I think I think you really people really need to actually constantly be thinking about that. But I think if if people think about that for themselves, am I jumping to conclusions? Am am I actually making uh, decisions or reaching judgments based on logic and evidence, or just based on um, being uh, manipulated by propaganda or by uh, knee-jerk reactions in my emotions. I think people are capable. Just the fact that they want to do that makes them much more capable of, of doing it if, if, if what they want to do is um, uh, think, think clearly and critically. I think you're absolutely right. I, I would add, you know, there's been some really interesting research recently uh, on, and in this case on uh, race, where, you know, many people have implicit uh, racism, meaning that you're not uh, an overt racist in that sense, but you have uh, race preferences. But what's very interesting is it appears that if you consistently point that out to individuals, that we can actually measure a positive change in your behavior thereafter. In other words, just knowing about uh, the ways in which you were saying, you know, that our that we we are we're not kind of hardwired to be rational, but if we point out areas where we have blinders, just knowing it would appear to increase statistically significantly um, our likelihood of overcoming, not everybody will, um, but many of us will uh, tend in a better direction. Uh, and so on a, for your personal level, the question there, Anna, I would suggest is understanding the way that we as human beings are not wired uh, to always uh, think critically allows us to better think critically. And you know that's kind of the fundamental process of thinking about anything in either a critical or in a scientific way. Uh, now, but what about Ken, kind of her, her implicit second question here, which is, what do we, is there something we can do to kind of help our communities as a whole be better critical thinkers? Or is maybe that's, if we're all just doing it, that will be a, an outcome thereof. You know, you and I are trying. Right? We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing this radio show with each other, I think, which is very much in the spirit of what the listener's question was asking. You know, we're, we're trying to have friendly and rational discourse about uh, subjects that we might have different perspectives on, uh, both to help ourselves think, you know, about other perspectives than our own, because I learned from you, but, but also um, to help our listeners hear uh, two different uh, perspectives, hopefully, hopefully with well-reasoned uh, argumentation. And, and I think you and I are both doing that in our classrooms as, as well. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, some professions uh, and some avocations lend themselves a little more to that than, than others. But, um, you know, trying to, trying to use whatever platforms we've got, whether it's the classroom or the radio, to try to um, promote, I think, good habits of mind. Um, I, that's that's what I think you and I are trying to do. I agree. I mean, I think you know, kind of having this conversation, and I will say, I'm I'm going to get kind of give a plug um, to you know education on this front. One of the ways, uh, specifically today, that I think higher education is being attacked uh, 
is in the idea that it doesn't always lead to some you know immediate job outcome or is it enough dollars over the course of somebody's lifetime and I, I think one of the most that overlooks one of the most important parts of education, which is this idea of being a rounded human being and a citizen, uh, and and, and uh, the huge part of that is to be a critical thinker, uh, and that may or may not have a, a dollar sign attached to it, uh, but I think that if you want a community where you're going to increase that likelihood, you need to have people, and sometimes you just got to kind of have to force them, right? I, I don't think a bunch of freshmen are immediately going to say, you know what? I I want to do today is you know read competing points of view or listen to them but having them do that has the opportunity in the long run i think to to have a, a, a broader communal impact on uh, on critical thinking to give a plug for higher education there <laughs> yeah I, I liked what you said about um you know de- developing thinking skills as a major goal of education and I'd, I'd really carry that a bit farther even and, and point out that you know when people do things like learn how to do calculus in in college uh you know, that's actually making them smarter. And so that's that's making them uh, uh, be able to think better. And even if they don't remember how to do calculus 20 or 30 years later, um, hopefully the real impact of that will be the the, the habits of mind uh, in terms of being able to, to, to have structured, logical, syllogistic reasoning that might still carry forward in, into the rest of their lives. I I don't think we have ever agreed more about anything because just the other day, you know, th- there was this whole little uh, conversation going around. Well, I've never used the math that I did in school. And I thought, well, then you've missed the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have deeply, deeply missed the point. It's not just about balancing your checkbook. But of course, if you don't have critical thinking, then you won't even try to balance your checkbook because you won't care. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> now we've gotten really meta on that question. So we yeah. uh, we better turn to our next. And this one is Zach from Philadelphia. By the way, Zach, I uh, love Philadelphia. I've spent uh, some time in Philadelphia. And as a matter of fact, I have a really fascinating story uh, about Philadelphia. I won't go into the details here. Uh, maybe Ken later, he'll want to know, or we'll do it on a bonus show. But I actually was on um, the Metro. I was up there for a conference in uh, Philadelphia. Very disappointed, by the way. By the, Have you seen the Liberty Bell in person? Yes, I've been there, yeah. Yeah, that that is a letdown, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> got a crack at it <laughs> well and it's tiny like it is tiny i'm like you always picture this much larger th- i was so disappointed uh but the uh the funny thing was i was actually there with uh a gra- i was a graduate school uh, a graduate student the first time then and he was from russia and uh he was as we were going back to brian marr he was giving me his uh his racial theories um and let's just say that i would have if I punching, I would have wanted to, I wanted to punch him myself. Um, but, uh, uh, saying them out loud on the Metro was probably not his most smart move in the history of mankind. <laughs> um, especially when you're a Russian anyway, but so Zach, I have a lot of respect for Philadelphia and your all's food. Uh, but be that as it may, let's get to your question. And you say, quote, is Congress not addressing the idea of federalizing or at least overhauling the election process, voter suppression in its biggest form, end quote. And I think this is a really interesting question. I think it's one that a lot of people uh, on the left and the right right now are wondering about, you know, uh, is it, are the elections fair? Are they rigged? I think that's more of the right side. And on the left, this idea of are, are we suppressing the vote, which is why I think what Zach's getting at here. So Ken, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think Congress could do more than it's doing. Um, you know, there's sort of, because of our system of federalism, 
uh, actually running elections is a is a state and local uh, responsibility. Um, but on the other hand, uh, that we've got a, a several constitutional amendments: the the fifteenth, um, the nineteenth, the twenty fourth, the twenty sixth, which deal with uh, voting rights and which give Congress uh, the power to enact legislation to pr protect different kinds of voting rights. Um, and we have some voting rights acts. Uh, so I think Congress could do more. Um, uh, Congress, if they had the if they had the uh, um, uh, political consensus to do it, um, could could uh, do much more to prevent gerrymandering. Uh, could do uh, much more to um, protect uh, to to prohibit different kinds of voter ID type laws that um, I think generally tend to only uh, advance voter suppression. Um, but the problem is you have a partisan divide. Um, Within Congress, and indeed, you know, generally, you know, also in the same partisan divide in state and local governments um, about what are the appropriate measures, and so I think that's really been the the sticking point more than um, whether Congress has powers to do different things. We yeah, I I, I agree mostly there, Ken uh, Zach. You know, Article One, Section Four of the Constitution is going to give uh, national election powers to states, and so with that, you're always no matter what you do, there is going to be a diversity of ways of voting. And one of the things that we have found is that uh, sometimes I think that the, there are purposeful decisions made uh, by state legislatures to um, help and or hurt different parts of the voting population, right? Uh, but it's also interesting what will sometime, there'll be unintended consequences to different kinds of elections. So for example, uh, one uh, particular type of election that has been, uh, had a little bit of popularity and it's still around is, you know, top two primary runoffs. Uh, well, that has led, that has often now led to where you have general elections where you don't have both major parties competing against each other in the major election. Instead, you have, uh, you know, two from one party or the other. So I, I think from, and I think Ken is right on this part, I don't think there's a lot of will there on the part of Congress to make things more uniform, to push up against Article 1, Section 4, uh, for what would probably be minor gains. Uh, you think I'm wrong in saying that, Ken? I, I just can't imagine... Uh, yeah, Congress passing that, something that would fundamentally make uh, big changes to voter turnout. Yeah, although the example you used, I think, was an interesting one, because in, in a certain sense, I don't think it was a, a typical or characteristic one. So when you talked about like the voting systems that allow um, uh, um, runoffs with the top two, or we had this new system in Maine that was just trotted out this election for the first time where they oh, had, um, you could choose the second choices and things like that. There, I think, actually, you probably have the the disinterest in Congress in trying to tinker around with that stuff, I think, is actually bipartisan. I think neither the Democrats nor the Republicans in Congress have much interest in trying to weigh in on whether states should do that kind of stuff or not. Um, on the other hand, I think most of the kinds of issues that uh, um, the the listener was um, uh, thinking about, I think, there's more of a partisan divide. So if, if you're talking extending, about extending extending uh, times and uh, yeah. ID requirements, those kinds of issues. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a, a partisan divide and I think it, uh, you know, directly reflects, um, you know, who's in the groups that are most affected by um, these different kinds of, of state restrictions and things like that. So um, so I think there, you know, change uh, Congress could get more active um, if if Congress um 
gets to at some point be more unified. So if the you know, if the Democrats end up taking big majorities in the House and the Senate and there's a Democratic president, um, I think we could see some 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 federal voting rights legislation get enacted. Um, I think it won't get enacted, um, you know, until you have that kind of unified control of the United States government. But but I think even even if it got enacted, it probably wouldn't address the kinds of voting systems um, Trey, that you were just talking about. I, I right. think there's just not that much interest in that. Well, and I mean, again, even if you had uh, what you're suggesting there, Ken, I'm not sure, Zach, if it's going to go. Now, again, I'm I'm implying a little bit from your, uh, your question, but I'm not sure it's going to go as far as you might imagine. Because uh, again, I, I see that when you say federalizing, I see that as being a little bit broader than I think either Ken and I are suggesting is uh, is possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, yeah. Right. I, yeah, it doesn't mean the federal government could run the elections. I think right. under the Constitution, the state governments have to run the elections. But but the federal government could prohibit they can um, make more some, some of the kinds of practices that states have been engaging in to, to get people off voter rolls or to, or to make it more difficult to vote. You're talking about Ohio. Uh, yeah, Ohio. Yeah, the purge is here, um, and, uh, and and I think the the voter ID laws that get more and more stringent in different places. And uh, actually, I know you spent some time in Florida. You know, I think um, you know, to my mind, Florida had some unusually stringent rules about absentee voting that made it uh, very hard um, for college students who, you know, whose permanent address is with their parents in Florida, but who go to college outside of Florida. Um, Florida wouldn't um, actually send the absentee ballots to the college addresses. They would only send it to the home addresses in Florida, and then uh, that would you know depend on someone at those home addresses Sending them on. actually make, making the effort to mail it off yeah. to their college kid. And so that that kind of thing, I think uh, Congress could play a role yeah. in you know passing laws about. So, and no, uh, but Flor- it would still Florida's yeah, an interesting one on that front because it's actually uh, anyone can get an absentee ballot. There's no. Uh, you don't, you know, in some states you actually have to have, there's specific reasons you have to, in Florida, you can actually do it for any reason. Um, but you're right there, there, the, the thing that was controversial in Florida was not, uh, what could get you the ballot, but, uh, how did the bad ballot get to you? <laughs> right. Right. Cause they would just mail it to the address that you were registered at. Right. Yeah. Um, because, you know, because they, early voting is a possibility in Florida, which was, you know, when I first moved down there was a, was an unusual thing for me. Yeah. Uh, so now, Ken, I have saved uh, Mike from Facebook's question for last because he actually has a large <laughs> multifaceted uh, question. And uh, Mike, uh, forgive me, but I, I'm going to kind of sum up uh, part of your uh, question here because it, it, it's long, but what can, uh, Mike from excuse me, for, uh, Mike from Facebook says is, you know, basically he's asking about the presidential nomination process because we're early in the nomination process, and he's asking us, Ken, uh, if we were king, would there be anything that we would change about the way parties select the best candidates? as a nominee and what he was, what kind of led to this question is, is that early, and he puts this in quotation marks early on in the debates, quote unquote, uh, he, he recalls there being age implied questions and, uh, the, the, uh, the candidate kind of had to restore with, well, I could still win a bicycle race. And so that led him to thinking about, well, what could we do about our combination of, of televised debates that could, 
get us away from personal attributes and rather to maybe a, a better nomination process. And he specifically calls out at the end of his question, uh, he says, uh, you know, separate from the medium question, there's the mechanics of particular states having a sequence of set of primaries and caucuses, e.g. Iowa, New Hampshire. Uh, so you can add this in basically to the if you were king preface. So Ken, if you were king of the universe and you could, which is actually kind of weird because you think if you're the king of the universe, you could just end democracy, I guess, right off the, you're like, we're not going to vote. I'm in charge now. Like, uh, yeah. But assuming that you're a benevolent, uh, almighty sovereign, um, what would you do when it comes to this presidential nomination process? Well, that is a big, uh, that is a big question. Uh, it's I, huge, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think some of the ideas that are currently used are, are basically good ideas and that they're, the problems sometimes maybe more in the implementation. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, and I think the questioner was, maybe this is part of his question, are, are don't like it that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire go early and things like that. Um, I, I think the idea behind that was, um, to try to have some small states go early for the purpose of minimizing um, the role of money, which I think is actually a good idea. You know, that mm -hmm. if you start in small states, then if, if it's going to depend on the candidates getting out there and meeting the voters, um, money's going to play less of a role in that, right? If you're, if you're starting in bigger states, it's all you're about need eating to have... fried food. Yeah. And, yeah. And you got to have money for the major media markets and things like that. Right. So I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I just feel like that, uh, yeah, that that um, it makes sense to me, but um, you know maybe there's some concern that Iowa and New Hampshire are not representative enough and uh, that kind of thing. I mean, maybe Super Tuesday comes a little too early in the process because after having a couple of um, you know Iowa, New Hampshire, one or two others, then suddenly you got like a third of the whole country having a primary the same day, and I think then at that point, you know, if you've got a campaign in a third of the country for one single day, then it already is going to probably be very much uh, determined by who's already got the most media, the most money, the most um, name recognition. And, uh, you know, the, the, there's really no way that all the candidates can just get out there and meet all, all those voters. Mm -hmm. um, but but that's, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a hard problem in a country of 300 and some odd million people, yeah. you know, to figure out, you know, which... Well, how are we going to find the, the 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 two that can be the major party nominees? Um, you know, there, there's no <laughs> there's no great way to sift through uh, all that information and and find those needles in that haystack. Well, and you know, and I'll add this is this is an area where the we have later, and I don't mean this in a negative way. Uh, uh, you know, we've thwarted the intention of the constitution. And so that leaves us with kind of the question of what, what we do now. And what I mean by that is the, the president being part of a, a popular vote, right? That, that is the complete antithesis of the purpose of the electoral college. Uh, but, you know, you had this problem of, well, states are going to get to determine this. And so why did these guys get to be the ones that are going to determine the, the president? And so when you have that shift uh, in the presidential uh, election process to being more personalized, I think that's the beginning of trying to then say, well, what should it look like? And Ken, when you were talking about, you know, for example, having Iowa and New Hampshire go first as a, a money-saving procedure, I think you're right. I mean, that that was, I think, part of that goal. Um, but our the nature of the election itself, I think, has a has a big stamp 
on the way they play out. So for example, in the United States, uh, because we have fixed election cycles, that means that, you know, we're two years out and, you know, we have listeners who are already asking about, as a matter of fact, uh, we, Ken and I had even toyed with talking about, well, you know, who's running? Because we have some Democratic, <laughs> you yeah. know, people who already have my name. I'm putting my name on the ballot right now. Uh, and and that's what makes this kind of question particularly sticky for me is that the nature of the way that we have an election, I don't want to say it determines all of it, but it certainly shapes the broad outlines. So if I was going to be a king and I wanted to undo things, I would probably have to start at that level of how we have an election. What do you think about that, Ken? You mean I'm like too far out on a limb there? Well, yeah, I mean the 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 um both the electoral general elections and the primary systems um have become slowly more democratized over time. Um but the constitution was agnostic in the in the presidential system about how um how the members of the electoral college would be selected. So um, you know, it, it doesn't, it didn't rule out having uh, uh popular elections. So, no, I, no. I, yeah. So I, I, I don't, you know, I think, I think the trend, the trend through most of American history, um, in almost every voting system that we've got has been for greater, uh, democratization. Yes. Um, you know, every, every time the constitution has been formally amended, uh, in any of the particulars with respect to voting, it's been to expand voting rights. Like the and 17th also, amendment, of course. Yeah. Yeah, Seventeenth Amendment for direct election of senators, Fifteenth Amendment for voting for African Americans, Nineteenth Amendment for voting for women, Twenty uh, Fourth Amendment for um, voting without regard to poll tax, Twenty Sixth Amendment for voting for eighteen year olds. So we we've only had expansions in voting rights. We've had no contractions in voting rights in any of the formal processes, and the same plays out in the informal processes. So whereas we've never changed the formal process for electing the president, um, you know, informally. We've made it. We've introduced primaries. We've introduced um, uh, um, general elections for president, generally dictating who's going to get to um, go to the electoral college. So, so those informal mechanisms as well have have led to greater democratization. And I think that's what the people want. Um, on the other hand, I, yeah, I tend to think if we could design the constitution all over again, uh, I like parliamentary systems better. Um, I think a, a system where the the members of the um, elected legislature then elect a prime minister. Uh, is a better system than um, having a uh, popular election of the uh, of the president and having to deal with the the kinds of problems we just had with this shutdown would be impossible um, in, a, in a parliamentary system. Yeah. Well, I think we're um, going to deeply so, agree on this one. <laughs> we're yeah, going to go yeah. the other way on Wednesday. No, right, I agree. Right. And that's I, that was actually what I wanted. That's what I was kind of hinting at is that, you know, if we were to wave the magic wand, we'd have to go back further. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You couldn't just say, well, what kind of edge changes can I make as kind of Mike, I think, is suggesting here to the primary? You'd have to take it back a few steps and say, well, do we want to have uh, our uh, head of government coming from a direct election or do we want them to come out of another body in a parliamentary system? And I, I, I deeply agree with you on the parliamentary system. When you look around the world, the United States being a stable um, re Republican democratic system, it really is the outlier among uh, systems in which you have strong presidential systems. Generally speaking, the longest lasting ones are parliamentary. And, I, and so I agree yeah. with you. If you were going to redo it and you kind of wanted to make some of those fixes, I think the start place you'd start is to say, well, 
man, it, it worked out for us, but maybe for some really idiosyncratic reasons that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about England right now. Even while they're going through this kind of wrenching, you know, pu- public political debate over Brexit, um, you know, they're not having any government shutdowns or anything like that. Like everything's just functioning, and uh, you know, we don't even have any actual issues dividing us as much as Brexit is dividing the English people. Like this wall yeah. thing is a kind of minor issue compared to Brexit, but this this wall thing got us uh, into an actual government shutdown for a month. That's purely a reflection of the the, the system of um, separated, divided powers that we have. And uh, Well, it yeah, also makes I, it yeah. easier for voters. I mean, the other thing that I think is very complicated in our system, and this is coming from a guy who teaches American government, uh, is that understanding American government is, is is relatively difficult, right? Just to yeah. understand, well, why does a particular policy happen to me? There's a lot of threads that you have to pull back as a citizen to figure that out because you've got uh, a differentiation between your state and between the national government. So you have to figure out, well, is this a state issue, right? Is this a national issue or is it a, is it a combination of the two? Who's the person responsible for the policy and, and who, who should either get the blame or the praise for the thing that's happening is a very difficult thing to do. But in a traditional parliamentary system, of course, if you if you can't uh, pass a bill, your government falls. Now, of course, Britain, they've made changes recently, uh, yeah. 2016, with the uh, the Fixed Government Act, although they, they've undone done it once now. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's a long, you know, British story. But yeah, I mean, when you have that kind of setup, it's really easy because the party in power is the one that, to get the praise or the blame and the because they can pass their things, hard stop, right. period. And likewise, you can know which of the parties outside are doing it because they have a shadow government that's effectively saying, here's the things that we would do differently, put us in, and they can do those things without being uh, impeded. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it that we have constitutional rights enforced by judicial review, which the English don't have. And I, I like having a judicial branch. I think that's an advantage. But I, I don't really see the advantage of separating the legislative branch from the executive branch the way we do it. And, uh, and now, I all think of our Brit- would, yeah. British listeners just got really upset with you, Ken. I'm just, yeah, they're yeah. going to say that's just because he's a law professor. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I hear you. I mean, I, I too have a... Uh, uh, you know, as a conservative, as a libertarian, I, I I think that especially the anti-federalists were right that there are some things that you want to write down. And when you look at some of the things that have happened in, in Great Britain, well, even, you know, they end up uh, codifying um, the human. Oh, my goodness. The human rights uh, statement on human rights from the uh, European Union, ultimately. Right. And I can't remember what year that is, though, now. The, uh, the the well, there's the UN, there's the United Nations covenants on uh, civil and political yeah, but rights. But they, uh, the United Kingdom actually uh, codified oh, it, the EU's uh, yeah, version of it. Uh, but I can't remember when they did that because they wanted to have the beginnings of that ball work, you know, uh, of protected uh, written civil liberties. Right. So I, I'm I'm definitely with you on that one. Yeah, the, 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 it's a benefit. The judicial review is a benefit of the American system, but but just I think we're both agreeing that um, se- separation of the executive and the legislative branches is not necessarily a benefit, and things function a lot better when you have the legislators choosing their prime minister and then their party is held accountable for what they do. Yeah, and I would actually, you were earlier talking about uh, the question of money in politics, and one of the things that I, I, I honestly, I don't think 
I think it's a pipe dream, uh, especially coming from the left, that we're somehow going to restrict money in major ways in the United States. And we could have arguments about the good or the bad of that. But I will say that if you really do want to have a a lower restricted on money, the easiest way is to have non-fixed elections where you only have X amount of time when an election is going to happen. As a result, you simply can't spend as much money. Yeah, that's one thing. But that's also where one thing where I was trying to say, like with the New Hampshire primary, you don't really have to restrict money because there's only so much money is going to be able to do in a in a small polity like New Hampshire. Right. So that's right. why I think it levels the playing field a bit. You don't need a lot of money to go campaign in New Hampshire and just go door to door and talk to every voter in New Hampshire um, the way you would. You know, you can't do that in New York or California. So right. you'd really need money to. But, yeah, I think you're right. Also, the non-fixed elections, that is a. Uh, it's. I think that's another uh, virtue of the of the British system. Um, uh, well, it, it used was weird to be. What happened it used to be. Week. It used to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. We could have seen it last week because uh, you know the, after after the Brexit vote failed so spectacularly, uh, there was a referendum on a vote of no confidence, which right. could have triggered an election, but but it didn't. Um, it didn't. It, was, it may, may actually. You know, as you know, she survived the vote of no confidence right after suffering yes. the biggest defeat on a substantive bill. So that was an interesting couple of uh, interesting couple of days there. Oh my heavens, yeah. As a matter of fact, listeners, just so you know, one of the things that uh, you may not understand this is that uh, once upon a time in British elections, uh, as as recently as just a few years ago, not having a bill passed would have actually been the trigger for uh, a new election. But they, as a result of now being on a permanent five year cycle, that they can overrule with supermajorities uh, means that you now have to trigger this vote of no confidence to have it uh, come out of it because it needs. Seventy-five. It's a super. It's a, 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 a general supermajority, is it not, Ken? I think so, but I don't remember the percentage. Okay. So if we've gotten that part wrong, our apologies. But it, that is the general gist of that. But so, Mike. In short, I think what we're suggesting to you is, if we were king, there might be some rather sweeping <laughs> um, <laughs> institutional changes that we might make. Uh, to try to get at what you're talking about. But of course, that would change the system more largely as well. So for those of you who think, well, I'd rather have the system as it is, uh, the kinds of primary systems that you see are probably simply a necessary consequence of that system. What do you think, Ken? Maybe. I mean, we had our, we've had our system of elections for longer than we've had our system of primaries. So primaries only started in the 1970s. So, um, in the, you know, yeah, our, that, yes, yes. Yeah. Our, our greatest presidents, you know, Lincoln, Roosevelt, you know, they didn't have to win primaries. So uh, it's uh, um, I think it's you could conceive of having different systems, but I I don't think that's what people really want. You know, I think people want to be able to vote in primaries and people wouldn't like it uh, if if conventions if, if, mattered. Yeah, right. If that all went back to just the, the people who are the party, the party bosses choosing the nominees. Um, you know, people didn't like that. That's that's why we came up with primaries. I think people <laughs> yeah. it isn't going to go back. Yeah. Even no, I agree with you. Bosses, so I guess if yeah. we were if we were only king for a day, right, and we we wave the magic wand, then the problem would be, you know, is that a long lasting change? <laughs> would yeah. it stay? And I think your hint there is correct, uh, especially in today's media environment. I cannot imagine having a primary where, excuse me, having a, a selection process where it's happening out of sight. Uh, I I just, yeah, I I don't think that would, I don't think that would be long lasting. Uh, And and if you really wanted to have people start questioning um, election outcomes, and I don't mean in in the silly way of like Trump, but in a more serious way, I think that would be one way you could trigger that. 
Yeah, I mean, people were even complaining that the superdelegate system, which saves, you know, maybe 15, 20 percent of the votes in the Democratic primary for um, uh, mostly elected Democrats, um, you know, and, and still gives like 85 percent of the votes to the primary voters. People were complaining that that was too undemocratic. So I, I think people people like the idea of, of democratizing the primary systems. And um, so if you're going to do that, then you're going to have all the problems that the primary systems have. It's it's a it's it's a big it's a big process, um, and it involves you know running a lot of primaries. I agree. So I think on that note, Ken, I would like to once again thank our Patreon supporters uh, for your being a monthly sustaining member. It, it's you that makes the politics guys possible. And just like I had said in the weekend show, in addition to just my gratitude, because that's a lot, I do have a lot of gratitude for all of you who do that. I want you to know that Patreon supporters get a bunch of really cool perks. As a matter of fact, if you become a Patreon supporter, you'll be able to hear the show that Ken and I did last weekend. And I would tell you more about that, but I won't unless you're a monthly supporter. That seems mean though. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if you want to know what we did, uh, but uh, in addition, we have uh, Mike's 12 part American government nuts and bolts series, which is currently on part five. And for supporters at the $5 per month or higher level, there is the Mike and Jay's deep dive policy series. I know I've listened to a number of the episodes myself. They're very exciting. Uh, They've already discussed healthcare, racism, and sexism. And at this very moment, I mean, maybe even right as we speak, Ken, I don't know. uh, They could be recording their episode on firearm policy and the second amendment. Uh, And I know that will be a fascinating one with, uh, with Jay. So to become a Patreon supporter, all you have to do is head to patreon.com slash politics guys. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. So that's it. That's the midweek show. I want to thank, and I hope if you like what you heard, um, listeners, as always, you know how to hit up with us. If you're new to the show, please subscribe, share our episodes, rate us on iTunes. That's what makes this possible. We would also love, we now will need a big batch of new mail and questions from listeners. So please reach out to us at mail at politicsguys.com or get us on our always interesting Facebook page at facebook.com slash politics guys or on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. This episode was produced by Trey Orndorff. There'll be a new show on Saturday. I hope you'll join us then.